You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, Father, in this hour, would you send your Holy Spirit to lift our hearts and our minds to see the wonder and the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, happy Pentecost Sunday morning to everybody. You know, after everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, he left. He returned to his Father. And and there's a troubling aspect of Jesus' ascension to the Father, of the fact that he told us that he was going to leave us. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, seems to get it. He understands that his absence will be troubling and, and disconcerting for us terrestrials who are still roaming the earth. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. And Jesus promises us in this farewell discourse out of John's gospel that he will not leave us alone when he departs to the Father, that he will send his Spirit, and his Spirit will lead us into all truth. The promise of the Spirit is the promise of Jesus' continued presence in our midst, even though palpably or tangibly Jesus is gone. You know, central to the Holy Spirit's comforting and promised presence is his role as teacher in the life of the church. The teacher will lead us into all truth, our gospel reading told us this morning. Don't leave us rudderless, Jesus. How can we exist as your people, Jesus, when you're absent? And Jesus answers with these comforting words, I will send you my spirit. The spirit will glorify Jesus and make Jesus known. The Spirit will lead us into the truth, the truth of the promises and the commands of Jesus Christ. So we should suspect, I think we should be suspect of any teachings that separate the work of the Holy Spirit from the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. And John's Gospel is very clear. Truth is a person. Truth is a Jesus Christ. I've been reading a little bit this week on Jonathan Edwards and the great revivals of the 18th century. Crazy things were happening. In fact, Edwards described some of these events as tears, tremblings, groanings, loud outcries, agonies of the body, failing of bodily strength. And Edwards was quick to point out that these physical manifestations neither proved nor disproved a genuine mark of the Spirit of God. So what were the positive marks, the distinguishing character traits of a genuine movement of the Spirit of God? And Edwards leads with point number one. The distinguishing mark of a true movement of the Spirit of God is that much is made of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Is Jesus glorified? Is the Word still central? Are people turning to the Scriptures? Is there love between the brothers and the sisters in Christ? You see, to tear the person of Jesus Christ apart from the Spirit is to divide the very singularity of the being of God. So on this Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, His coming to make alive that which was dead, we hear Paul's words in Romans 8, especially this morning. 
That's what we'll look, we'll look closely. Because Paul has a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is grounded in the reality of Christian existence in the here and the now. You know, whatever we can say about ourselves, we have to say that we exist in the here and the now. You might fantasize about another place in time. Oh, it would be lovely to be in Paris this morning, but you're not. You're here. Because you cannot escape your body, you cannot escape your existence now. And Paul has one word in Romans 8 to describe your earthly existence right now. Brace yourself. It's the word weakness. There's a lot of groaning in our epistle reading this morning. The creation is groaning. We are groaning. Where, whatever has material existence in the here and now, well, where you find it, it will be groaning or it will be sighing. There's a kind of internal and external groaning or sighing that marks human existence. Were the trees outside conscious, like we are, then we would hear them audibly groan. Uh, our family cat, Mercedes, I find her as she ages now. She's an aged cat, always nestled in some corner of our house, sleeping, seems to be sleeping all the time. She's tired. She's groaning. She's sighing. Material existence from top to bottom knows that it is in need of bodily redemption. Could Mercedes, our family cat, talk like in some fantasy novel? I can hear her snooty voice saying, Oh, Mark, I'm so tired, and while you're up, can you get me something to eat? <laughs> decay is what we're talking about here. The creation itself is under the burden of decay. Our bodies are under the burden of decay. Sin's impact on creation and human bodily existence, it's total. And all of us know in the depths of our bodies and our minds what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. We are weak. Earlier this year, after some prodding from a colleague, I worked my way through William Faulkner's novel, As I Lay Dying. It came at the right time. Now, the novel comes from multiple perspectives on the same events. We get an inside look at the experience of various family members of the Bundren family as their mother is in the back room, literally dying. Now, Vardaman is the youngest child, he's, uh, and he reflects on the fleeting uh, character of life from his little boy's perspective. He had seen that morning a fish in the yard that someone had recently caught, and he knew that before the day was over, the fish would be cut up and eaten by the family. And he thinks about this fish's momentary existence, fleeting existence, in relation to his dying mother. And in one of the more powerful moments of the novel, you turn the page, at least in the edition that I have, you turn the page and you see a whole chapter with these simple words. My mother is a fish. You see, Paul wants you to know this morning that you reside in this most complex and unsettling moments of time where the age of the flesh and the age of the spirit are both upon you. And because we are in the age of the flesh with all of our moral and physical limitations before us, we know that our adoption as the sons and the daughters of God is not yet consummated. And this is where Paul leaves you on this Pentecost Sunday. We are adopted. We are children of the king. In an intense uh, baseball coaching moment this year, I was coaching with Oscar Price. Um, his wife, Emily, uh, reminded Oscar, and then me through Oscar, to remember that we were children of the king. 
uh, not to forget it. So yes, we are, Emily, fully adopted and children of the King. But at the same time, we're not fully adopted yet, are we? We're still in our bodies. How else could it be? Just look around. People are dying. We are dying and decaying. We are fish. And we wait eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Without doubt, we make very frail and and futile attempts to escape the haunting realities of our bodily existence, our human existence. I heard a Dominican priest recently say that he believed that much of the sexual revolution of our culture has to do with people desiring something transcendent, something that allowed them a momentary escape from the realities of our material existence. Perhaps, actually probably, But you can swap out sex for whatever transcendent reality that we clamor after. Whatever narcotic, as simple and silly as it might be, that we use to deaden the pain. But whatever we try, Paul heralds the gospel news this morning that there is only one remedy for our moral and physical weaknesses in the here and the now. And it has to do with the there and the then. It has to do with the redemption of our bodies and the future day of the resurrection. And we have the spirit of Jesus Christ as the first fruits, as the down payment of our future hope. But in the meantime, Paul calls us to patience and to hope because the best is yet to come. So yes, we are weak, Paul tells us. We are fish. No crafty arguments are needed to verify this claim. I mean, the mere fact that every one of you in this room, within the next 24 hours, will have to close your eyes and sleep, will have to shut this thing down for a while so that we can gain enough strength to go at it for one more day. The very rhythm of our waking and sleeping attests to the fact that however you imagine yourself, you are weak. I'm weak. And in our weakness, Paul tells us, the Holy Spirit comes to help us. Likewise, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Bible is replete with an understanding of our human frailty. Think about these lines from the book of Psalms. So teach us to number our days. Or, he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. I read an article in Scientific American years ago that described the, this isn't very pleasant, the the decaying process of our bodies post-mortem. And I was stunned by reading this, but in this article they said that given the right um, circumstances of weather and climate that your body post-mortem could be two weeks from the skeletal phase. How's that for a happy thought? He knows your frame. Just a big pile of dust, two weeks from the skeletal phase. And there's such comfort, I believe, in the all-knowing power of God. He knows, he sees. We can't hide behind some social construct of our best selves, our, our Facebook selves before God. He knows our weakness. He knows the limitations of our existence. And the Spirit comes to help us in our infirm and feeble state. 
He comes to help us in that most important of ways, in our communion and life before God himself. Where Paul leaves us this morning in our, in our epistle reading is, the Holy Spirit comes to help you and me pray. Because even in our prayers, we are weak and in need of the Spirit's help. Think of the scenarios that drive us to pray. Our children, our future living conditions, our health, our parents as they age, our spouses, the needy, whom should I marry, should I marry, and the list goes on and on, where we need to know God's will. But we're weak, we're infirm, and the Spirit, Paul tells us, prays for us in accord with the will of God, because only God knows God's will. And we are given the Spirit who prays for us in ways that we are unable to pray for ourselves. It's inexpressible. I don't know if the American theologian Willie Nelson was reading Romans 8 the morning that he wrote his song, Too Sick to Pray. But he might as well have been. If you heard that song, here's the first line. I've been too sick to pray, Lord. That's why we ain't talked in a while. And the Apostle Paul listens to Willie from the heavenly portals and he says, you know, you're on to something there. But even when we don't think we're too sick to pray, only the Holy Spirit of God can pray for us completely in accord with the will of God. So on this Pentecost Sunday, take comfort in God's knowledge that you are weak Yet in your weakness, he hasn't left you alone to flail. We have the Spirit of God to aid us in our weakness, to keep us grounded in a place of patient hope in God's future promises. We thank you for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And wonder of wonders, the Holy Spirit prays for us in ways that are beyond our perception and our knowing. We may not know all that is going on, and the reality around us. But Paul wants you to know this morning that if you are a child of the king, then you are caught up into something so much bigger than you can even know. It's inexpressible. You are caught up in the very prayer life of our triune God. So on this Pentecost Sunday, we say, Holy Spirit, pray for us sinners in the hour of our need. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.